This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Why don't we begin with a, a quick prayer? Yes, sir. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many graces you've given us and ask that in your mercy you draw us closer to yourself through faith, hope, and love. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Um, so just a, a little bit of um, uh, maybe a preface to, to the paper I'd like to give for some context and explanation. Um, the, the title, I think, is sort of the working title of this talk is Metaphysics and Speculative Theology. But even that's still a little bit broad, perhaps. So, um, but um, the, the general idea, right, is to talk about how, um, how our language about being uh, can matter for theological discourse, uh, how it might have implications for that, and to look at some specific cases from the 13th century um, of the way in which Aristotle in particular and, and Aristotelian commentators were being received and how that affected language about um, theologies, rather, right, of creation, uh, for one thing. Uh, but then to highlight St. Thomas's uh, account of creation using, in particular, Aristotle and Avicenna, um, and I wanted to talk specifically about how um, he develops the distinction between being and essence in that context and what it means for him. And um, building on that, finally, after having done all that, the, the third and final um, portion of the paper, we'll have a look at the, um, the way in which his account of being and essence in relation to epistemology is related to his account of sanctification. Uh, that is his account of personal holiness and growth in the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And so I'll have a little bit to say about how that works, but particularly how it works in relation to the, that being in essence distinction. So um, again, in some ways, it's sort of a, a case study, you might say, of how a particular philosophical topic, although I would say one of the core philosophical topics for Aquinas, one of, one of the hallmarks, if you will, of the Thomistic philosophical tradition, cashes out theologically uh, and what makes Aquinas' theological account distinctive uh, in light of that. Okay, so from the beginning of the 13th century, the reception of Aristotle at Paris and elsewhere in the Scholastic West was marked by both intense interest and controversy. Although the majority of Aristotle's corpus was available at the beginning of the 13th century, albeit in indifferent Latin translation, the assimilation of his teaching was still in its infancy. In the years that followed, each generation of scholastics was confronted with new waves of translations of Aristotle, commentaries from various sources, and at times, ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical censures. Although the latter half of the 13th century would be marked by heightened tensions within the university and the church over the role of Aristotle, Ferdinand van Steenbergen has argued that Beginning in the 1230s, a great deal of serious metaphysical experimentation with Aristotle, Aristotelian ideas, rather, began to take place. Although scholastic theologians would struggle with many philosophical and theological challenges, the Christian doctrine of creation would occupy many thinkers during the mid-13th century because of its fundamental incompatibility with the doctrine of an eternal, seemingly uncreated world, which many Aristotelians of that time defended. Christian cosmology, which necessarily posits God as a metaphysical reality in both a causal and ontological relationship with created things, cannot accept an ontological assessment of created nature that makes no reference to this relationship without significant modification. Some, like William of Averne, rejected Aristotle on this point and displayed a certain tendency towards metaphysical occasionalism, compatible in some ways with Al-Ghazali's own earlier response to a similar problem. This approach evacuates created nature almost entirely in favor of divine causality. In large part, the Christian doctrine of creation was communicated to the scholastic period through Pseudo-Dionysius and other Christian Platonists who framed the doctrine theologically using the Augustinian and Neoplatonic concept of divine exemplarity. By the 10th century, questions about the compatibility of Aristotelianism and monotheism had already been raised within the context of Islam, however. Avicenna, responding to these concerns by employing elements from the Neoplatonic tradition to argue 
that creation ex nihilo does take place, albeit as an eternal emanation outside of time. While this approach may be compatible with Aristotle in a certain sense, it also seems to reintroduce elements of Neoplatonic emanation theory that were rejected by earlier Christian Platonists who sought to preserve divine freedom in relation to the creative act. Avicenna argued creation was not restricted to God, but possible for 10 created intelligences as well. The Neoplatonic origins of this approach lend a sense of ontological necessity, perhaps, to creation that provoked theologically motivated reactions in both the Islamic and Christian worlds. In the Arabic world, Al-Ghazali and others sought to preserve the freedom of God from emanationist causality by downplaying causal necessity in order to preserve the universal causality of God himself. By extension, Al-Ghazali argued against causal necessity even within the natural world, arguing that it is not necessary, strictly speaking, to say that a tree is created from a seed. Al-Ghazali was opposed to the causal structures of Aristotelianism and Neoplatonism, believing that these systems were necessarily opposed to monotheism. In place of the stable teleology of created natures, which sustains the causal dimension of Aristotelian cosmology, Al-Ghazali argued for a kind of continued creation in which not only being, but causal relationships are created from nothing, radically dependent on divine ordination. A similar strand of reactionary occasionalism would begin to emerge in scholasticism as the difficulties inherent in Avicennan Aristotelianism came to be fully appreciated in the medieval West. While it was clear to scholastic thinkers that certain of these doctrines were incompatible with the Christian faith, the doctrine of creation became a focal point for this discussion during the 13th century. When compared to some of his contemporaries, William of Averne saw a deeper tension between Avicennan Aristotelianism and Christian monotheism. The majority of scholastics understood the doctrine of the eternity of the world, which they attributed to Aristotle, to be incompatible with the Christian doctrine of creation from nothing. For William of Averne, however, the Aristotelian concept of nature itself was not fully compatible with God as the cause of created being. Beyond simply affirming the Christian doctrine that the world was created from nothing, Averne argued for a radical interpretation of divine, uh, divine freedom as potentia absoluta, that is absolute power, in which creation is effectively denied a sense of causality that is proper to nature. Although differences between the two remain, thinkers like Al-Ghazali and Averne have difficulty reconciling the potency of natural things with the power of God. Averne's theory of divine causality is developed in opposition to Avicenna's doctrine of multiple hierarchically ordered creatures, or creators rather. Averne correctly restricts the attribution of creation to God alone. He goes farther, however, claiming that God is the being of all beings, to such an extent that being cannot be attributed to natures in a strict sense, but only to God. When considered causally, this means that God is not only the efficient, but formal cause of created beings in an immediate sense, supplanting the role of natural forms. To this end, Averne claims that God is to creatures as the soul is to the body. This approach leaves little room for the attribution of causality to created natures, reducing creatures on a causal and ontological level to means or occasions for the communication of divine causality. In the end, Averne's inability to accept Aristotle's understanding of nature left him unable to grasp the non-competitive relationship between the power of God and created potencies. We now to turn to St. Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas responds to these problems differently from Averne and other earlier scholastics. Beginning with the received Platonisms of Augustine, Boethius, and Pseudo-Dionysius, Aquinas constructs a theory of creation in which created natures display both the ontic and epistemic integrity intrinsic to Aristotelian physics and the hierarchic dependency on God as first principle 
and as ex nihilo creator, commonly associated with, with Christian Platonism in the past. In Aquinas' work, doctrines from Arabic Aristotelianism are clearly incorporated into his doctrine of created natures, which are understood to be not only self-possessed of their own natural potency and teleology, but framed in reference to the exemplarity of divine being as well. In this much, Aquinas relies in part on Avicenna. It is well known, for example, that Aquinas' distinction between essence and existence is drawn in large part from Avicenna. John Whipple argues that even Aquinas' concept of being as being, apart from any individual subsistence, is implicitly dependent on Avicenna as well. As was clear to William of Averne, however, Avicenna's over-reliance on the doctrine of emanation posed problems for divine volition and providential governance. Avicenna's systematic affirmation of the world's eternity posed further problems. Concerning the former, Aquinas will eventually rule out even the theoretical possibility of Avicenna's theory of emanation in his De Potentia. In the sentences, however, which is his earliest text, roughly equivalent to his doctoral thesis, Aquinas thought it is as yet not, Aquinas's thought rather in this early text is not yet fully formed on this point. For Avicenna, the act of creation itself can be delegated to an intermediate instrumental cause. In Distinction 1 of Book 2 of his commentary on the sentences, Aquinas concedes the theological, uh, the theoretical rather, possibility of Avicenna's claim, but denies its actuality on theological grounds. However, in his sentences commentary, Aquinas does clearly modify Avicenna's approach to emanation, challenging the assumption that no more than one immediate effect can be produced by the first being. To this end, Aquinas argues that angels or other beings are not intermediaries in the act of creation. Only the first cause can be a creator in the full sense, because in the act of creation, more than simple physical motion is involved. While a natural agent moves to act in a certain way according to its particular form, a multitude of divine ideas proceed from the divine intellect immediately. Because God's act of creation is fundamentally intellectual and not just according to the potentiality of a given substantial form, a multitude of diverse effects can and do proceed immediately from this one source, according to Aquinas. And these effects participate in their one source according to different modes. For Aquinas, this, distinction, this distinguishes God as the cause of being itself. In this much, Aquinas acknowledges a debt to Avicenna, inasmuch as he believes that Avicenna claims God, cre God creates through knowing and loving the good of his own essence and willing that same good. The immediacy of the divine act of creation is also entirely free lacking the compulsory or automatic quality of Neoplatonic approaches to emanation. By knowing and loving his own essence, God does not impart necessity to the created act. However, because of the formal exemplarity of divine goodness, God's freedom is likewise not rendered arbitrary. In the act of creation, God interacts with the divine ideas after the manner of an artist, Aquinas claims choosing in both freedom and in wisdom to create in his own image and in his own likeness. For Aquinas, God remains radically free in creation and is not constrained by the seeming involuntary nature of the process of emanation. Further, God chooses in each, in each act of creation to communicate something of his goodness to each created nature, which mirrors directly the exemplarity of divine goodness and not simply that of an intermediary instrument. In this sense, the Neoplatonic hierarchy of Avicenna's approach is flattened to a certain extent, as individual creatures share directly in the, exempli in the exemplarity and goodness of divine being as a likeness of that same being. Aquinas, is accomplish Aquinas accomplishes this without evacuating the ontological integrity of created natures themselves. In this much, Aquinas responds to many of Averne's concerns about Avicenna by reframing certain elements of Avicenna and Aristotelianism within the context of Christian metaphysics, 
in such a way that an authentic, cons that an authentic conception of Aristotelian nature, including natural causality and teleology, is preserved. So concerning the relationship between God and creatures, Aquinas emphasizes at once both the integrity of natural substrates and the immediate relationship between created substrates and God as first cause at the level of being. Aquinas likens the emanation of creatures from God to the production of an artifact by an artist. It is from the artist that the form of the artifact flows into the material. Although a created nature is radically dependent on God as first cause for its essence, Aquinas argues strongly for the integrity of created natures. That which informs a created nature does not exist outside of its substrate. To this end, he objects to Avicenna's theory of the agent intellect, so-called, arguing that a hylomorphic instrumentality of body and soul require the act of the intellect to be present within the creature. In this much, the individuation of a subsistent form, as opposed to a universal form, comes to be from nothing and is the result of divine volition. The fact of divine exemplarity does not entirely explain this individuation. The form of a given thing is the result of God's creative choice and represents a unique exercise of his principal efficient causality. The good that God chooses to create as the form of an individual created nature modeled on his own exemplarity is the object of his divine created will, creative will. By extension, the teleology and finality of this nature are in a sense also contained within the divine will as its object. Unlike Auvergne, Aquinas preserves divine volitional sovereignty in both creation and providential governance without disturbing the ontic integrity of created natures. So turning to the distinction between being and essence, we can turn to Aquinas's work on that subject, De Ante et Essentia. In this work, Aquinas discusses a fundamental distinction within created being, um, building again on this, this sense of um, essences and individual existences in relation to divine exemplarity. So as he proceeds, he retains a fundamentally Aristotelian framework that emphasizes the primacy given to being itself. For Aristotle, that which is, that which is most real, most primary and most fundamental is that which has being. We encounter being at the height of its expression in the actuality existing thing. And so, and so substance forms the basic touchstone of reality for Aristotle. All of physical reality is envisaged as motive. All that is moves towards its end, from various shades of potentiality to, to full-blown actuality, in which a substance is most itself. That which actually is has a greater ontological value than that which is only potentially. As we will see, what is known and what is can be divided along these lines. Essay, as the pure act of being, is this fullness of actuality. God alone possesses the fullness of being in this sense, in simplicity, and without a separate essence. But in all else, these two concepts, being and essence, are distinct. An essay stands as the perfection received in an actualized thing. St. Thomas tells us in the fourth question of the first part of the Summa Theologiae the following, that existence is the most perfect of all things. Hence, existence is that which actuates all things, even their forms. When therefore I speak of the existence of man, existence is considered a formal principle and as something received and not as that which exists. Following Aristotle, Aquinas seeks to uncover the underlying ontology below the flux and potentiality of the natural world, exposing the notion of being itself, both physically and metaphysically. St. Thomas also deals with the, epi the epistemological order, however, which for both he and Aristotle is a realm of real things, existing in the mind in a qualified sense. St. Thomas assumes Aristotle's cognitive model 
in which the actuality of the thing perceived is in fact really assumed as immaterial existence by the senses and can be manipulated by the intellect, abstracted from sensible reality. St. Thomas frames his distinction of being around the distinction made in the title of his work, being as opposed to essence. The principal terminology used is almost entirely derived from the conjugation of a common Latin infinitive. This indicates that the terms in question should not be understood as predominantly autonomous notions, vaguely related only in some metaphysical finality. Rather, we are confronted with a set of concerns that are deeply interrelated. The Latin verb essay, to be, means to be or exist, and is the root concept employed by St. Thomas. As he manipulates this word grammatically, Thomas reveals different aspects of being, different perspectives and approaches to the central question. He turns the object of study in one direction, revealing ends, this or that individual thing which is. He turns the object again, exposing essentia, what makes a thing what it is. At the outset, we might illustrate this with the following oversimplification. The individual thing existing as ends that has being as essay and the way in which it has this being as essentia. To give a practical example of this, take the example of a, of a human person, Socrates existing here, but as man. And so the essence human uh, is, is a perspective on being, um, but it's a perspective on this being fundamentally. And the other senses of being are almost analogically related, we might say, to that central reality of subsistence, which forms our first point of contact with the being itself, even epistemically. So St. Thomas describes essay as actus ascendi. Uh, this is frequently translated as the act of being. This translation is accurate, but a popular English translation of the Summa Theologiae renders the same concept as follows. To be can mean either of two things. It may mean the act of essence, or it may mean the composition of a proposition affected by the mind in joining a predicate to a subject. The Latin original renders this as actum ascendi in this case, and the translator's interpretation points to the relationship between being and essence, to be as, quote, the act of essence. Essence is derived from the character of the substance or thing in question, but can also be conceived of in the abstract with no immediate relation to any one existing thing. So humanity versus Socrates or this man could just think about humanity. Essence might be thought of as a mode or a way of being. The fact that such a mode or way of being actually exists as a particular ends or substance is determined by the fact that it has received being in a given sense. Therefore, existence, as essay, must be compared to essence, if the latter is a distinct reality as actuality to potentiality. The potential of essentia is activated by essay in an individual end, an individual being, but essentially, but essentia points to a larger reality beyond the numerically individuated case of a given ends, as ends is itself by individuation, but it is said to be when it is as essentia. So being signifies essence, in a sense showing the essence to the observer. For essence, apart from being, is not available to the senses. But essence, while related to being, is not being as such. As we have seen, essence is the potency of being. So taken in itself as a concept in the intellect, apart from its actuality, it can have only potential being. For St. Thomas, essence is that which confronts the intellect in a specific thing. There is a corresponding question that arises in the, epi the epistemological order. The quiddity or whatness of a being is the answer to the question of identity posed to a being by the intellect. Quidest, what is it? Quiddity refers here to what, quid, as opposed to that, as, a, as opposed to the is, the est, the fact that it is. The is here is particular 
and so it is essentia and not essay proper that is sought. Quiddity, in the end, is a, a question about a sense, a, essence, we might say. So essence and quiddity are all but identical in some ways. However, the notion of quiddity begins to shift our focus to the order of knowing. So it begins the process of an, epi an epistemological bridge, we might say, between actually existing things and our, our contact with them. The nature or essence is that which is available to the intellect in its search for answers of this kind, answers of whatness. Here, the distinction between knowledge and being, the order of known and the order of, of existence or essence begins to emerge. For St. Thomas, there is a clear difference between independently existing things and our perception of them. On the surface, this difference is obvious, but the modern reader should not allow himself to slip into the mind-body dualism with which he is no doubt familiar. For our purposes, the difference must be marked fundamentally by act and potency. And so Aquinas's moderate realism is fundamentally related to the doctrine of analogy, even in its epistemic uh, quality when we say we know a thing uh, as it is in its subsistence or as it is essentially. For our purposes, the difference uh, must be marked fundamentally by act and potency. So essentia uh, in the order of, of essence must be marked by the actuating presence of essay, but to separate essentia from the order of essence is to separate a potency from its actuality. In the intellect, we must understand ourselves to be contemplating essence apart from being. There is reference made to being, of course, but the essence as it exists in the mind is not actualized in the true sense of the word. It exists, but in potency to the reality of its actuality, which is essay. To sum all that up, um, again, you could think about the difference between Socrates as an individual man subsisting and how I know him uh, there's a sense in which Socrates is in my mind, but we say that only analogically and using the language of potency. There's a, a certain essence, we might say, or a, a more universal form in my mind. Socrates himself is not in my mind as such, <laughs> not in his act of existence. Uh, that's, that's a part. Um, but nonetheless, the, the moderate realism of the Thomistic tradition has a vocabulary for knowing in reality the truth of his existence and turning the, the dial, as it were, uh, of being pers the perspective of being to ask quidditative questions about what, what or who Socrates, how he is. Um, and we can gain access to the whole range of Aristotelian categories, not just subsistence that he is, but all the other accidental forms of being, uh, what he's doing, uh, what kinds of shoes he's wearing, whether he's sitting or standing, um, whether he's uh, wearing this or that or the other thing, and, and all sorts of other qualities. Um, even more intrinsic and meaningful than his shoes, for example. Um, but having said all that, um, to move to, uh, to toward, towards my conclusion, at least, <laughs> I, I want to stop for just a minute and sum up uh, what I've said so far before I move to the third section of the paper. So the first, the first section uh, dealt with divine exemplarity and some of the struggles um, in the scholastic tradition uh, with regard to assimilating Aristotle and certain versions of Aristotle the relationship between monotheism and the idea of God as a creator, right? Uh, was already raised philosophically in the Islamic world as early as the ninth century. And so the 13th century scholastics are, are using a lot of their resources, are reading all of those, Aristot those Aristotelian commentaries from that same period and working through them themselves. And in some ways they gain a lot of tools from them, uh, but there's also some modification and reception that has to happen. So. I, I gave two examples, William Bover on the one hand, who really is more of a, uh, who, who rejects all of those iterations of Aristotle and really has a, a more reactionary metaphysical occasionalism. But then I, I juxtaposed Aquinas with that as a more moderate realism. But then the whole distinction of being in essence is a way of talking about um, the, the integrity of created natures as having a certain teleology to themselves, a certain subsistence to themselves, a certain form to themselves, which is all sort of analogically related to the divine act of creation. Um, so we don't have to go the route of William of Auvergne, perhaps. Uh, we could take a more moderate approach. So that's just to say that the essence and existence distinction is, is one of, that, that and the distinction between act and potency would, would be one of the primary ways in which um, the Thomistic philosophical tradition accomplishes that, building on resources from Avicenna 
and, and other thinkers as well. Uh, but all that gets framed against, let's say, a, a kind of older Western doctrine of divine exemplarity, which had been around in, in the Western world for a long time and had been assimilated into Christian thought uh, far before the scholastic period. But all that is getting sort of melded together. Um, and so you can see elements of all those things in Aquinas. It's not that he's eclectic, um, but he's, he's, his genius for synthesis is actually quite strong. Uh, but he does have sources, certainly, and he is related to these existing traditions. So having said all that, I, I want to close by looking at how all this cashes out in a specific instance. Um, when we look at the idea of sanctification, to use more biblical language, we're really talking about recreation, uh, to use the language of St. Paul, for example. Uh, so what happens, what happens in grace, for instance, uh, as a metaphysical question? What happens to the person? Um, how is faith related to epistemology? Things like that. Um, Aquinas has great and complicated questions to all, answers rather to all those questions. But I, I want to focus just on kind of the ontology of sanctification as it's related to being in essence and the, the, the relationship between the mind and its object. And uh, just look at some ways in which this distinction that Aquinas has made actually matters. It has an impact, let's say, on, on the way he's going to talk about um, something as basic to Christian life as holiness, for example, right? Uh, or, the, or the idea of grace. Okay, so I'll start with uh, just a, a little bit of a, a counterpoint from the 20th century from Karl Rahner, uh, who has a different approach. <laughs> and then we'll move back to Aquinas uh, and the difference between essence and existence to, um, to look for some solutions from the Thomistic tradition. So in response to 20th century controversies concerning grace and nature, Karl Rahner em embraces an explicitly Kantian, I think, cognitive model here. Uh, in his work, uh, Nature and Grace, in an attempt to articulate the intrinsic relationship between nature and grace, Rotter interprets Thomism through transcendental philosophy, following the, the example of Joseph Marischal. While the scope of Rotter's output on this subject is broad, this present paper is limited to the implications of the specific appeal to the cognitive structure of classical transcendental philosophy. In this brief work, the identity of the person in relation to God and to his grace, his nature, is at issue. Is at issue. Specifically, it is the, the rapprochement between models of natural cognition and the supernatural, and the usefulness of transcendental philosophy for the project of theology with regard to grace that we will examine here. Both Karl Rahner and St. Thomas Aquinas place similar emphasis on the importance of natural psychology in relation to divine grace. St. Thomas, however, stresses the human soul as a knower subsistent within an understanding of reality that is not only epistemologically realist, but marked by the themes of creation and image. So going back to the idea of divine exemplarity that we spoke about at the beginning. Here, the natural cognitive makeup of the human person functions as a robust analogical ground for Thomas's theological treatment of the same nature as elevated within the context of grace. The concepts of creation and image are important functional concepts for St. Thomas. The status of the human person as created places him in a real relation with God as the source and sustainer of his being. This much is true of all creative things. And yet as rational, the human person stands in a unique relation with God as image. For Aquinas, the psychological makeup of the human person is itself reflective of the Trinitarian identity of God. This image is not a static representation, but instead is subject to dynamic growth towards perfection under continued creative impetus. This results in a perfection of the intellectual nature as imitating God, as understanding and loving himself. The intellectual nature, whose acts are intellect and will, is perfected in the image of God inasmuch as it knows and loves him. So epistemology is important for sanctification for Aquinas because the human person is image. So it's a particular way of understanding or interpreting theologically the doctrine of divine exemplarity. For Aquinas, image is understood in a threefold fashion. First, in terms of natural aptitude for understanding God, which is of the mind's nature and common to all persons. 
Secondly, to the extent that this understanding and loving is actuated or even habituated, albeit in an imperfect fashion, which is enabled by the conformity of grace. Thirdly, image is understood as perfect knowledge and love of God. In this third stage, image is perfected into likeness in the heavenly state of glory. Here, likeness is marked by, quote, a kind of unity, for oneness in quality causes likeness. Within the concept of image, then, grace as recreative functions to elevate natural knowing and loving to accommodate the imminent, the imminent presence of divine life within the soul. The soul is perfected as it participates in the divine nature, quote, after the manner of a likeness through a certain regeneration or recreation, end quote. This recreation in grace is not an extrinsic suppression of nature, but rather a true elevation and transformation of existing faculties. In this sense, there can be no real conflict between grace and nature, as both are radically contingent upon God as exemplar cause, whose creative will initiates, sustains, and draws human nature towards himself, animated, animating it ever more deeply with his own life. For Aquinas, grace and nature cannot be fundamentally opposed, as they both spring from the same self-effusive font. Inhering as a quality in the subsisting nature, grace as accidental is deeply related on the order of being to the soul itself, while not itself constituting the, sub the subsisting soul, grace animates and colors, we could say, the subsistent nature of the soul, moving it as a formal cause, quote, as whiteness makes a thing white and justice just. Grace in this sense cannot properly be construed as external to nature, as another res existing in some sense outside of the nature or as, imposed, or as an imposed superstructure. Rather, as with any accident, grace as accident is, is not called being, quote, as if it had being, but because it is some, because by it something is. Hence, it is said to belong to a being rather than to be a being. Hence, the creature is, in a certain way, as a result of its presence. So grace causes us to be in a certain way, to be in a, in a, in a Trinitarian way, to imitate the divine exemplarity in a Trinitarian fashion. The mistaking of the accidental for the extrinsic is unfortunate on the part, perhaps, of Rahner and others, as it, precise, as it is precisely the natural concept of accident that enables us to understand grace as something which is both deeply related in an intrinsic and hearing manner and perfecting of an existing substance. Aquinas's theology of image and recreation is premised analogically on natural cognition. The recreation initiated in grace relies heavily on the divine life as it takes shape in the soul in the form of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Grace precedes these virtues, and while not itself a virtue, it initiates the process of perfective recreation that gives rise to the pattern of divine life within the nature itself. As the natural cognitive faculties are elevated and transformed, developing habits of action beyond their initial capacity. As created, human nature receives the gift of God as end, wherein goodness as object simply follows from the gift of subsistence. With the elevation of created nature in recreative grace, however, divine life takes hold in the soul more immediately with the gift of God as object. As general and specific instances of the loving divine will in relation to the creature, the two gifts of creation and grace appear as distinct manifestations of the same human contingency and as an intensification of the same divine love. While grace as a quality in the soul does not enter into, does not enter itself through the intellect per se, the intrinsic perfection of nature in grace is premised analogically upon the ability of natural cognition to both grasp its object and to be subsequently perfected by it in understanding. In natural cognition, 
The object is that which is known by the mind. And this object is known in such a way that the mind, in fact, takes on the likeness of its object, such that the object can be said to have a mental existence as distinguished from its, subs from its subsistence in the mind of the knower. This results from the perfection of act in which the intellect extracts the essence of the thing perceived. The presence of the object, which in the natural order is presented to the mind by means of the senses, has a perfecting quality on the intellect. The analogical bridge between this understanding of natural cognition and the dynamic of grace in the soul via the theological virtues occurs when grace as qualitative formal cause moves the soul in a nonviolent fashion and establishes habits within it, enabling natural knowing and loving to find their term in God himself. Grace enables the image of God found in the rational soul to be perfected into likeness in these knowing and willing capacities through the presence of the exemplar as object. For both Aristotle and Aquinas, the mind stands in relation to the object and in a sense is moved by the object to act. Being fundamentally discursive, the mind is continually engaged in a process of composition and division. Many of the mind's internal operations are characterized by relations that are merely logical, the relation or connection between a man and a cat, for example, both of which are animals, is not a full-fledged or real relation, but exists only in the mind. And yet not all that exists mentally is exclusively so. As we have seen, some mental existences have a corresponding subsistence outside the mind, differing from its mental existence through the presence of designated matter. The relation between the content of the mind and the things in themselves as real has manifold implications. Many mental operations, such as the acts of composition and division, which yield such mental concepts as species and genus, are relational in the logical sense. And yet all of these mental operations are made possible by being rooted in the real. They are premised upon an equation between essence in the mind and things in themselves, essence used here in as much as it bears on the nature of an individual subsistence and not in the sense of species or genus. So the humanity of Socrates or my understanding of him versus his actual existence. The reality of this link with actually existing things enables all further mental processes. The res, the thing subsistent as object of the intellect prompts the act of understanding as anything really related is in a state of at least accidental dependence on the thing it is related to. The intellect in, initial, uh, in initiating its act of knowledge is reliant on the presence of the object. Further reflection in, the, in, in its absence, the absence of the object can be stimulated by memory. But even here, a fresh consideration is traceable to the initial encounter with the object itself from which the essence was initially extracted. Given the nature of Thomistic cognition, objects as available in an epistemologically realist manner are essential for perfective intellectual action. In the in if the intellect was unable to access objects and be perfected by them, its relation to these objects would be merely logical. And Aquinas's theological assertions regarding image and recreation would devolve into equivocation. So I've reached the end of my time, so I'll stop there, but I'll say a few words just to conclude and sum up. If we return to the example of Karl Rahner, the, um, the, the validity of Kantian epistemology is a separate question, which I, I can't hope to resolve here. But what I've hoped to show is that there, um, it does matter for, for Thomism what types of philosophical assumptions you have, metaphysically and epistemologically, that your Thomism will look an awful lot different. Uh, Rahner is an example of transcendental Thomism, which was a movement in the late 19th, early 20th century that took um, German idealism, broadly speaking, as a point of departure. That's, that's a project and an experiment, uh, which we, we can talk about certainly in the Q&A if, you, if, you, if you'd like. 
Um, but uh, the, the, the idea that it leads to an intrinsic understanding of, na of nature and grace, an intrinsic understanding of sanctification, uh, is not obvious, at least on Thomistic grounds. By contrast, if you maintain the moderate realism of Aquinas' epistemology, rooted against the backdrop of divine exemplarity and the integrity of created natures as divided by act and potency and being and essence, you, it yields a much different picture of sanctification in the end, uh, in which the exemplar himself effectively gifts himself as, as the direct object of knowing and loving of the intellect and will. And that's what's perfecting the, the creature in grace in the end for Aquinas. Um, okay, well, I will stop there. And uh, thank you for your attention and for your time. And thank you, Father Lynch, for that brilliant lecture. Kind of uh, hung up in the head. I keep thinking about the comparison between Edison on the one hand and Albus Ali and William Alburn on the other. Yeah. Uh, they definitely disagree on. Human, like, on, 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 on divine freedom. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, creation is necessary and is can almost be regarded as an emanation from God. On the other hand, creation is uh, very trenchantly and in an austere way maintained to be an act of divine free will. Mm -hmm. uh, the claim is both sides of this polarity end up with a system in which you can't have human freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, on the side of Al-Ghazali and William of Auburn, because all of your choices are actually being chosen in you by God, and thus you're bound on necessity. On Avicenna's side, it's unclear to be how your being is even separate from God, since you are a necessary emanation of God. Uh, would it be accurate to say that in kind of fretting away between these two extremes, Thomas creates a system in which human free will is actually possible? Uh, yes, I think the short answer is yes. Um, you know, and I think um, the question of the of accounting for free will isn't something that I tried to directly address here, but it's, it's obviously implied, right? So I, I think a Thomist critique of those systems of their deficiencies would would certainly imply this this uh, um, the question of human freedom in addition to questions of creation, right? Because when you think about the integrity of created natures, at least that's my term, but it, what that means is just that a nature has subsistence, and it, also, it has an essence which has teleology to it. So human persons are perfected by doing human things, right? In the same way that whales are perfected by whale stuff, or whatever that is, you know. They, um, but the particular sort of um, problematic of being rational, in a sense, is we, we have a bit more, uh, we have more capacity for universals. And so we, our freedom is perhaps more dangerous to ourselves in some ways than, I don't, you know, um, we, we, we have a unique, a seemingly unique capacity to come up with ways to undermine our, our own uh, perfectibility, right? Uh, so that we're perfected in connatural acts, to use the language of Aristotle or Aquinas or the later Thomistic tradition, that the human stuff, let's say, is, uh, is perfective of the human person. Uh, so, th so will is for teleology in that sense. Uh, and for Aquinas, it follows intellect which is a big difference from later the nominalists or, or other traditions like that that really uh, preference the will. Um, but there is a link between that, that hyper-volitionalism and metaphysical occasionalism in the broad sense that some of these earlier systems, you know, th through Scotus and Occam will, will produce not uh, completely congruent uh, thought worlds, but let's say genealogically related ones, uh, if we're allowed to talk about genealogy anymore, I don't know, but uh, for the sake of argument. But um, the, um, so, uh, so yes, I think, but the, the, the beauty I think of Aquinas' count of human freedom is that it's because of it, it's sort of analogically couched within divine causality. A big difference between Aquinas' count of divine causality and more modern systems like, like Descartes, for example, or, or others, uh, even Leibniz, you know, is that um, instead of reducing God to one of the four causes effectively, or just a big version of one of them, a billiard ball on the same table, for instance, or the formal cause or the formal efficient cause in the room uh, that's sort of, you know, shifting things around somehow. Um, if you if you allow him to be the cause of causes, but that that that, that requires the analogy of being right. You, you have to have a deeper sense of causality as rooted in the of being said of God in a fundamentally different way. And so his relation to created being uh, is, is non-competitive, but is also 
uh, Aquinas says this a number of places, that he, as, as exemplar, he has a sort of inside access to created natures in a sense, right? So the, the dynamic of act and potency itself, the, the motion from potency to act, um, he, like his act of, of being, <laughs> he doesn't move, right? I mean, uh, uh, um, but his act of knowing and loving himself and of, of being, which is also the act of creation, that in that act, he's sustaining all other acts. Even the whiteness of Socrates is sustained by the divine act of being and, and creating. And so for us to be at all, we're already saying that our being is couched within that larger reality for Aquinas, which it, it has the potential to yield a non-competitive sense of, of the perfectibility of human agency, while at the same time maintaining a deeply integrated sense of divine agency by counterpoint, you can see in the early modern period, folks like Molina or others will really, uh, they'll try to describe nature and grace by putting both God and the human person in the same rowboat, basically. And you have one or God has the other. And who's rowing and who gets to row, sort of. And like, well, uh, the, the most Thomas would say that's to miss the point, effectively, right? That, uh, that um, you're not sharing a rowboat with another created cause, that as cause of causes, uh, God's principle causality uh, is, is instrumentally related to, you might say, because even an instrument participates in the formality of the, of the, of the higher cause when the, when the axe is swinging in the hand of the carpenter. Um, it has an operation qua instrument, right? But, but that instrumentality is being moved by something larger. In a certain sense, when Aquinas talks about divine artistry and creation, he's intimating a similar kind of causal relation. Although, um, even in the self-movement of creatures, apart from that strict sense of instrumentality, there's something similar going on. Is that, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned uh, sanctification is recreation. Yeah. And I was wondering, does sanctification change our essence? Yeah. Uh, or does it uh, heal it, or how does that, how would you understand? That's a great question. Um, this was a big debate in the Middle Ages, right? So like, do you, <laughs> You know, so it's a grace is, is a kind of type of recreation. Okay, um, creation from nothing, right? That's that's the the Christian sense from Genesis, and metaphysically that starts to mean something for scholastics. Very specific, is grace just a, a like the creation of a substrate? Well, you have to start to nuance that analogically almost immediately. And by analogy here, I mean just uh, you're saying something secundum quid, right? So you're saying something in a certain sense. So is it creation? Yes. It's not creation from nothing, though, uh, because then you'd have a second substrate or something like that. You'd have you'd be here. Socrates would be here and like grace would be next to him subsisting or something. Right. And that actually doesn't do us any good. Right. <laughs> what you want is for it to be like the whiteness of Socrates. Right. You want it to be like a qualitative modification. But Aquinas is going to say it's actually in the essence that it's actually below the level of the powers even, uh, which is a, a pretty radical claim in a lot of ways. So he's even sort of bending the analogy of being as, as it describes created reality where you have substances and accidents and being said in various ways. He's sort of bending that and elevating it a little bit. So the sanctification runs really deep. It, re it is a recreation, but of something that already exists. So not from nothing, but sometimes we'll call it concreation. Uh, but so it, it's, creation in a sense, but what, what you end up with is a kind of, I like to call it as just as a teaching metaphor or whatever, a sort of amplification of the analogy of being effectively, that great grace has this sort of elevating effect on the person from the ground up. Uh, and um, that's really different from saying that it's on the one hand, maybe it's just a, a legalism, right? You, you get marked on the right side of the ledger and that's it, right? <laughs> or it's, um, you know, it's reified. Grace is a thing, but it's not really a Thing that's part of me. It's not adhering in me. And even if you were to say that it's an accident, not all accidents are intrinsic. Some accidents are more circumstantial or extrinsic, like whether Socrates is shod or not, whether he's wearing shoes or sitting or standing. You really want it to be intrinsic, and then you want it to be intrinsic in like the deepest way, or at least Aquinas does. So yeah, no, he, um, he, this, yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, um, Aquinas actually developed uh, from his earlier work to his later work on this question. So he spent a lot of time thinking about it and in the end was able to work out a pretty well integrated system, I think. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, have you read at all about how this relates to like natural theology? Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious, like what's your like opinion about like how that like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, like mystical theology, like in like um, mystical prayer or that sort of thing, or uh, yeah, or. Yeah, I guess I just talked about like the practice in general. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. So like the practice of of mystical prayer or that or the phenomenon or that sort of thing. Yeah. Or, sort of like the idea of like you're connecting. Yeah. 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 Like how do you like how would you work that in with the framework that you just talked about with like sacramentality? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So there. So um, mysticism, you know, became a really sort of hot topic in like late German idealism, right? You know, and uh, in the twentieth century. And so there are folks in transcendental tomes that like to talk about mysticism a lot, you know, in epistemic terms, right? Um, there's also, um, if, if you want a Thomistic correlate from a, a more metaphysically realist perspective, right? Um, you could go back to John of St. Thomas or someone like that uh, from the 17th, late, early, sorry, early 17th century, right? Um, and look at his treatment of the gifts of the spirit and the infused virtues. Um, so there's, there really is a, um, there's also a Toulouse tradition in, in France. There's, there was a Toulouse revival in the 17th century, a similar period, which, um, it, long story, but the, the point is there, there's a Dominican school that developed in that period. Um, and uh, uh, presented Aquinas' this theology of sanctification of the infused virtues and the gifts of the spirit, um, presented it as a version of mystical theology, right? So on a practical level, maybe that's a more helpful way to approach this. Um, on a practical level, um, you know, for, for Aquinas, um, you know, mis mystical theology, um, or, or it could be an account of mystical phenomenon, if that, you know, sometimes you see this in the lives of the saints or certain experiences. He has a vocabulary uh, for talking about that in grace. So it would be certain types of charismatic graces or other things like that. Um, but just more anthropologically, in terms of what grace is doing, you, you really have like the it's the full possession of the intellect and will by divine life is that's, that's where he's going. And so the, the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love are, are habituating as habits. They're qualitative habits, right? And they're, they're modifying the powers of knowing and loving. So faith is in the intellect, uh, hope and love are in the will. Um, and so there are sort of habituations, right? Or extensions of, of our capacity to know and love in a way that makes it possible to have real communion with God. And the gifts of the spirit, Aquinas has a whole system for, the, for um, linking them to the theological virtues. So they're sort of furthering perfections. Um, on a more practical note, uh, you could use the example of a ship. This is from John of St. Thomas. Uh, so uh, he thinks about the theological life like a ship. Uh, so they, the oars on the boat, if you will, bear, bear with me, it's a complicated metaphor. But <laughs> the oars in the boat are like the acts of the theological virtues because they're real human acts. Uh, you're acting in a sense, right? But the sail is like the gifts of the spirit. So they're purely receptive to the motion of, of divine love and divine grace. And so you see in the, like the super saints, you know, I mean, or uh, people like St. Teresa of Avila or someone like that, you know, who's, who was a mystic, right? You know, a Carmelite. Um, and uh, you see a deep, like spiritual integration where they're, they seem to be epistemically receptive in a way that just, it's not even an analogical extension anymore of natural knowing and loving. It really is kind of a different category, but it's also deeply integrated on a human level, it seems to be at least. So there is a vocabulary there in Aquinas. He would use the gifts of the spirit to talk about that, is the short answer. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Or? Okay, all right. All right, yeah. You mentioned That's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know if I can fully resolve it here, but I, I, so you're right. There are, there are different interpretations of Aquinas on some of these points. Uh, so I didn't get into that too much. I, I tried to stay, 
gives you a little more textual, uh, but more Platonizing versions, right? Really do um, well in Plato himself, obviously, right? You know, there's the reification of, of essence is just not a problem, right? Uh, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think you could think about it philosophically or theologically. J just theologically, it becomes a, a bit more of a problem for the Christian tradition. So I think even in Boethius, you already see. Adaptate more adaptations metaphysically uh, of that, where um, you know you don't have the sort of waterfall of being anymore. You know where uh, there are there are intermediaries in creation. Um, so um, I, I think we we wouldn't want to say Aquinas says that. I, I don't think he means to, if I understand it, to sort of reify um, uh, essence in any sense, even an essay commune, right? Um, I think, I mean, I, I would tend towards the language of potentiality, right? I mean, it's really in a sense like um, essence in the sense really um, in re regard to, to existence really is at the level of, of sort of potency in a sense. It's in potency to be. And so um, there's there's a general sense, even, even before you start talking about individual subsistences or forms or essences, there's a more general potency to being itself, right? That like, um, I think traces back to the, the context again of divine exemplarity, that what, what God is creating using the divine ideas. Um, again, unlike Neoplatonism or something, he's not just sort of like carving out pieces of himself or something in a participatory way. Here, I, I think, not everyone agrees uh, with, with me here, uh, but uh, there are, so we, there's debates about analogy within the Thomas tradition and the analogy of being. But I, I think the, the analogy of proper proportionality, which is starting to come back into fashion a little bit, um, is actually helpful for some of these questions, right? Because um, that allows you to avoid, um, you, it allows you to say analogy and say it a lot <laughs> and say it about, about being uh, without becoming a Neoplatonist. That's perhaps an oversimplification, but, um, uh, but I think, um, yeah, um, I don't know if that, that fully answers your question or not, but it's, there's a lot to think about there. And you're right. That is a, there's, there might, there's a temptation there perhaps within Thomistic metaphysics, which I, I think to be fair to him, like he, he's preserving an awful lot of the insights of the Platonic tradition. I don't want to get in trouble with any of my Aristotelian friends by saying that, but uh, there is, there's a lot, there's a lot good about the, about Platonism and Christian Neoplatonism that he's, he's not averse to incorporating for sure. Um, but he has, produced a synthesis, which is, it certainly is, a, the, the idea that Plato and Aristotle are opposed is a Renaissance idea anyways, right? Like there's a lot of Aristotle already in Neoplatonism that, that was incorporated. So, I mean, he's not really doing something that should be that incomprehensible to us, I think. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I think he's, he's quite sensitive to that, um, that sense of the, the, the need for there not to be intermediaries. And not just because William of, of Averne was all up in arms about it, but because he himself sees, sees the problem. So I think we, we have to understand it in a way which um, doesn't, doesn't reify that in, in an intermediary sense. That's, yeah, that's a, okay, all right. <laughs> that's all I got for now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, any further questions? Is essay, just in a very blunt, simplistic way, is essay to essentia something kind of like the way that matter is deformed? Um, well, it's as, as existing, it's individuated by matter. Sort I mean, sort of. There, uh, so, I mean. Oh, because, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm a, I'm a so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, completely from the outside. Oh, cool, yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so, so sort of in the sense that, um, uh, let's see. Um, okay, so it, the ind an individual substrate like Socrates as opposed to Plato, as opposed to whoever, you know, uh, Immanuel Kant or whatever, you know, is um, that individuation of the essence human is, is materially individuated for Aquinas, right? So that there's this man versus that woman versus that other guy or whatever is the difference is material individuation. So, so matter is really what limits form through subsistence. So he, he talks about actuality as a kind of limit on the potency, if you will, of essence or of being so that to be in this way, as opposed to not all those other ways is, is, is a, it's a kind of limitation, not in a bad way, but it's a circumscribing, let's say of, of being. So matter has that effect on form for sure. Um, when, uh, yeah, the, the, 
and, and form at that level, you really are talking about essence, essence, right? Um, so, but it's it's a slightly different. You're really asking the the, the matter is really the. Not really like that. There's a parallel. There is a parallel. I've, uh, but it's it's um, but the the essence uh, the essence is the uh, more abstract universal and the and and the being itself uh, or the ends is that's the the act. Um, yeah. So there's. It's not a. I would. Say, I don't know if it's a direct parallel, but there, there's something there. You can you can draw some parallels. Okay, yeah. Just another real quick outsider question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it seems like we're pretty well read in the early domestic commentators, which are not widely known or even accessible. Do you do you say Cajetan or Cajetan? I say Cajetan. I say Cajetan. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I. Um, I. I don't know. I. I just Americanize it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, most people, most, you say uh, enough, yeah, that, that's what that's that's what I rely on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very good. Uh, yeah. Thank you for all the questions, and thanks again to Father Lynch for a great event. Yeah,